I'm uh, so excited to talk to John Carver this morning. John, um, I'm going to give you a minute to go over your career for the listeners, but being somebody from inside public education, being a superintendent um, from a state that I've been talking about a lot lately, which is Iowa. Iowa has really uh, made big moves for parents this year, but but mostly because um, I work in Missouri, and in Missouri, a lot of the resistance we get to more innovative education reforms comes from superintendents. So here I have a superintendent in the flesh, virtually, and I just want to hear your point of view. So if you could first just, you know, give me a quick five-minute rundown of your career within public education, and then we can move on to talking about how public education is structured. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you for having yeah. me on today, yeah. Susan. And, and um, as you alluded to, I, I'm a 40-year veteran of public school. Wow. Um, I have worked in uh, rural schools. I've worked in uh, urban schools, suburban schools, uh, high-poverty uh, very affluent school district. I've gone through all the chairs. I started as a classroom teacher at a, a, suburb, a suburb of, of Des Moines, Johnston. And um, that was an interesting experience because not only was I a classroom teacher, but I was also president of the teachers union. Wow. So I helped to negotiate the uh, master contract. So I saw everything from that side of the field. Um I had a, a quick stint coaching football in college at Simpson College, so I've got that part of my background. Uh, from there, I went through the chairs. I went, was an athletic director, assistant high school principal, middle school principal, elementary principal, uh, superintendent of schools in Iowa, and also here in Tennessee. Wow. Uh, and during that piece, um, uh, I saw education as it was. Uh, and I tried to make education as it could be. Uh, one of the districts I led in Iowa, Van Meter, was one of the first districts in the state to uh, uh, deploy technology, one-to-one computers, for yeah. every child K through 12. Uh, we became the model for the rest of the state. Uh, at the time, I, uh, Governor Branstead, our Iowa governor, uh, appointed me to serve on his STEM advisory council. Wow. So I, I worked that side of the coin. Uh, during the Obama administration, I was recognized as one of the first 100 future-ready superintendents in the country. Wow. Several trips to the White House. Uh, I saw that. And then along the way, I was also an adjunct professor at several colleges in Iowa, uh, Drake University, Upper Iowa, Viterbo. And um, so I, I've seen all of those pieces, and uh, which kind of has led me to where I'm at right now today here in Tennessee. Uh, where are you at right now today? So, I mean, clearly, you know, public education inside and out and backwards and forwards, right? You've seen all components of it. You know, I, I have my point of view. I went to public schools. My kids went to public schools. I'm all for public schools. And most people love their public schools. I get that. Most people love public school teachers. I think that's wonderful. It is a difficult job. However, um, a lot of kids end up in a school that doesn't work out great for them. And in many cases, they there's nothing you can do. You put them on the bus, you send them to the school where you know they're not learning to read for whatever reason, or they don't have good relationships with the staff or the kids, or it's too big or it's too small or it's not fitting their needs. And my career is sort of based on the fact that no one should be stuck like that. You should have an option to go to a different school. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think overall, you mentioned teachers. Uh, teachers who go into that, or people who go into the education, they do so to help kids. 
right? Yeah. And they do they go into it with the uh, best of intentions. Um, it's it's my opinion today that the educational system that we have in place uh, it, it no longer fits in the 21st century. Why? And that something new it needs to evolve. And I do think parents, um, you know, they need to have a say in their education. Now, um, in Iowa, you mentioned Iowa. We've had open enrollment in Iowa uh, for many years. Was it there when you were superintendent? It was. What did you think? Um, you know, I, I, I saw it as a good thing. Um, to the first district I was superintendent at in Van Meter, we were a small K-12 school district on the outskirts of uh, Des Moines, the capital city. And uh, it was it was a scary time for us because Waukee, which is a, a dynamic uh, growing school district, West Des Moines, dynamic growing school district, they were coming out to our boundaries. And, um, you know, at one point we were afraid they were going to, you know, just absorb us. Yeah. And so um, in that particular instance, open enrollment served us well because uh, we, you know, we had that significant emotional experience about maybe being absorbed. And so it caused us to think differently, which caused us then to uh, we, we knew we couldn't match the other two school districts in brick and mortar, but we could match and surpass them in instruction and academic achievement. So awesome. that's when we started issuing um, uh, technology, uh, became very active in social media, and we, we, we created a, a global footprint from this little school district, which in turn then, uh, under open enrollment, kids could migrate from Waukee and West Des Moines to, to Van Meter. And so, um, you know, that, that kind of, excuse me for the interruption there, but that, um, you know, that got our enrollment. Now, the it, 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 it helped our district to the point where we were having so many open enrollment kids at end, uh, you know, it kind of swamped the boat. And we had to tap the brakes uh, on grade levels. We had to look at our capacity, and uh, which caused the problem because folks um, open enrolling in, uh, you, know, you know, one child might be in, but the other child may not. So that, that caused the problem. So I... And I do think it was good because parents were choosing us. Uh, when I went up to my, uh, Howard Winnesheek, a school district in, in Northeast Iowa, huge landmass school district, two county, um, and going up there, um, we we looked at open enrollment, and there were two small schools in that district that, that I had to close because they didn't have the enrollment. And so still from other districts, like attract stu- students from other districts or? Well, we we couldn't. Oh, too far? The, building, the buildings were, were not in good shape oh. and nobody in the other surrounding districts wanted to. This was on the fringe of this district. No one in the other district wanted to allow their kids to come in. And so, you know, they could leave. I mean, that was and part of their leaving was then I had to go in and close school to uh, community schools to elementary school that's heartbreaking Which, for folks but, but you know everything has a beginning a middle and an end and um, and you mentioned at the front end of our conversation you like public schools your kids like public schools you spoke and see um, there's a there's a piece that a school 
is is a is is an identifier for a community. And you know, geez, if you lose your school, your your community's going to die, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I've I've listened to several of your podcasts, um, and I think it was um, uh, Andy Smart. He said, "Education, you know, is it evolution or revolution?" And yeah. really and truly, it, it's not a revolution; it's an evolution. Yeah. And, you know, again, it goes back to, I think, having parents engaged in their kids' education, I think that, you know, the research is out there. The best teacher is the parent. Sure. Um, So COVID, that was a good thing. And giving choice. And, you know, public schools do have a a monopoly on on the kids. And you mentioned superintendents wanting pushback uh, because of innovation and I mean, that's what happens in Missouri. It's the association of superintendents that show up to and they've signed a document, several superintendents in the state, uh, you know, saying that they're against open enrollment. It's going to cause districts to advertise every state around Missouri, with the exception of Illinois. Every one of our neighbors has mandatory open enrollment and has had it for decades. Iowa's had it for decades. Right. We are the last holdout. And it seems to them as revolutionary to allow kids to pick a school outside their district when that's what's happening across all of our borders. And, you know, some of our most um, rural areas border Iowa and parents could move to, and now in Iowa, of course, you can pick a private school. Governor Reynolds signed a bill this year. You can pick a public school or a private school. It's just going to make Missouri look so behind the times for families if we're still like, no, we do these monopolies or in a circle around every school and you can't go anywhere else. Right. Well, and in the state of Iowa and also here in Tennessee, uh, you can't send your school buses into a neighboring district without that district granting permission to do so. So in Iowa, one of the things with open enrollment is, yeah, you could pick any school district you wanted to. But it was up to the parent then to get the kid to uh, either a drop-off point inside the district where you wanted your children to go or to take them on to school. And, and again, uh, and, and I've been doing some research on Missouri, and I'm, I'm sort of familiar with it, in that um, this is a shift of power. Uh, by, by having choice of That's schools right. is a shift in power. And, um, you know, I... You know, there it is. It is not a level playing field. In that, some school districts are innovative, creative, have the financial wherewithal to do things. Some districts don't. And you know, Missouri, Missouri is. Hang on. I thought I started. I apologize, but you know, Missouri is is very much like Iowa in that you've yeah. got these metro areas. You got Kansas City, um, St. Louis, and they have unique challenges and problems. Just like in Iowa, we've got uh, Des Moines, uh, Omaha, uh, Council Bluffs, the, the, you know, yep. Iowa City, Sierra, but here in Tennessee, it is uh, Memphis and Nashville and then Chattanooga and, and Knoxville, and you have all this rule in between. So when you yep. say charter school and choice, uh, perhaps it makes sense in Nashville. But if you're in Tullahoma, Lewisburg, or Lynchburg, yeah. and you start talking school choice, um, okay, where are you going to choose to go? People kind of freak out. Well, I think the supply side would, I think if uh, state money followed the child, the supply side might catch up insofar as you could open a school. I think you might see some of that in Iowa. 
now that there is money following the child to private schools. I mean, Arizona opened up to universal school choice this year as well. And, uh, Tens of thousands of kids have signed up. So I think you're going to see schools opening. And I think you're going to have a period of time uh, where the market figures itself out and a bunch of those new schools end up closing. And, you know, there's going to be some adjustments in the market. But I do think the supply side will catch up. And we have a lot of rural private schools in Missouri. I think rural charters, there's a thousand rural charter schools nationwide. I think a rural charter school is a cool idea. I think it's a great idea for some communities, but we don't have any in Missouri. Uh, Tennessee, I think, might have some. No? Tennessee, of course, and they've got the KIPP schools. Yeah. With a choice piece. Uh, and But I guess, you know, this whole concept um, of, of school being a place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that doesn't work in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the one of your podcasts was with, uh, you know, uh, Paul Hill. And, I, and mm-hmm. I did get his book and I've read it now. And, you know, yeah. that idea of contracting services, yeah. um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but again, if you're doing that, uh, it, it, it really, you know, nips at the educational structure that's currently in place now. Yeah. Um, it is, and, and the thing of it is, the school systems that we have now are ba- are based on 20th century industrial factory model assembly line uh, systemic thinking. And, and how should it how should it be changed? Um, do you think? I know you've written about this, and so I do know the answer. But you've got some very well, great thoughts around like where could we go moving forward in terms of the structure. I think that. Uh, first of all, you've got to educate the whole child. And, you know, I'm from Iowa, so GPS farming, right? You, yeah. you analyze, you get all kinds of data and more fertilizer <clears> here, less <throat> fertilizer there. It's not, you know, it's not the same for everyone. I think that needs to be applied to educating children mm-hmm. because a child in a rural area is going to have different needs than a, a child in an, in an urban setting. So you, you've got to, you got to educate the whole child. Uh, and based on their needs, then you need to look at individualized, differentiated, personalized instruction. Yeah. And you say those like an needs. IEP for every kid. Is that how you see it going? Uh, I, I think that's the uh, I think that's a good model that's out there now, uh, which, you know, IEPs for your audience that isn't familiar with IEPs. Uh, you look at the, 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 the skills of the child. You, you create tailored interventions or, or supports for that child, but then you're putting that child with the idea that they're going back into the traditional classroom. Yeah. And and that doesn't fit. Um, and, you know, there are some rudimentary questions on the IEP about, you know, what is it your child wants to do? You're supposed to have a transition plan in society and all that, which I think those components, as you mentioned, should be for every child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, what about uh, the classroom? How would you restructure a classroom? Uh, Fred Bermonti's a good friend of mine. He's out in New Hampshire. He's kind of the, uh, the, the, the uh, godfather of uh, looking at education instruction differently and in that um, the learning should not be contained to a classroom. He's yeah. been a strong proponent of um, experiential based instruction. You know, having kids out in the community, hands-on, and then, you know, figuring if you need a math credit, for example. Uh, if you're working at a, a garage and you're having to find figure out compression ratios, 
There's yeah. your math. Yeah. Um, and, and, but if, if you'll indulge me a, a quick story, when I was in Van Meter, uh, I had one of my teachers uh, who had, uh, his classmate was a, uh, uh, in college, was a physicist and worked for um, the Department of Defense, Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, building our country's nuclear device. Okay. Wow. And so this is in Iowa. We tried to set up a deal where Trey's friend could Skype, Zoom, whatever, and teach an advanced physics class and Van Meter. That makes sense. That'd be pretty, pretty cool, huh? Sure, but I assume he's not a certified teacher. But. Exactly, he was not a certified <laughs> teacher, and yeah. so he was. We weren't to get around it. We had to. We figured out a workaround, but you know, I, I had I, a similar I, experience where I taught statistics to graduate students at Johns Hopkins, and was asked to teach AP statistics at my son's high school, and then was told I had to take some classes to become certified. And I was like, "Look, I teach PhD students, not taking classes to teach high school students." But, but, it's, see, but those are barriers. I mean, you were head of the teachers union. Those are like artificial barriers that are set up that well, that it, hurt it, teacher quality. It, it protect well. What their idea, you know, um, uh, many instances the the teacher unions uh, they support the weakest link. Yeah. And uh, and I had a good friend of mine uh, who was a, a union electrician, and we would have conversations, and, and Mike would tell me he goes. You're the teachers union. What what is that? He goes, if you're an electrician and you have a union card, that union card says that you're a certified electrician and you can go in and do the work. He goes, what what union card does a teacher have that certifies that they're competent to be doing what's in the classroom? So he really took an aback by you know saying there was a, I was the president of the teachers association. <laughs> Well, I guess my question, John, then is, can people within the system of public education as it exists today, I mean, we're demonstrating it here today because you're sort of from within that system and I am not, but can we all agree that we have the same goals? Because what I hear is folks like on my side of the issue that think that we should have open school choice, sort of like what Iowa has. Uh, I'm often accused of wanting to, wanting to dismantle public education, and I want nothing of the sort. I want it to be, um, I want it to offer solutions for families for whom their, their neighborhood school doesn't work. That's all. And we know that a lot of the kids who go to schools, their neighborhood schools, and it's not working, go to some of the worst schools in the country, and they are, you know, disastrous. <laughs> I mean, North St. Louis, we have plenty of school districts around St. Louis with single digit rates of proficiency. 3% of the eighth graders can do math. I mean, I would suggest that they're not actually providing a free and fair public education because no one's getting educated. I like the idea of school choice as a way to let those kids out into something better. But also, I just think it improves the system as a whole. But I'm often accused of being anti-public education. I'm not. Well, and you, you use the word system, right? Mm-hmm. And again, sifting and sorting kids by chronological age, having artificial barriers. You know, every every school district is, um, for lack of a better term, it's it's a it's a it's a, a silo, sure. and you can't enter, you can't go beyond the silos. And you know, in in the book that we published last fall, learning and leading in an age of transformation, yeah. uh, part of it in there is, is I talk about my great grandmother Nina. 
who started teaching in a one-room schoolhouse in Edmond, Oklahoma, and then transitioned from what they called country school to town school, where they would transport kids in. And in the one-room schoolhouse, all the children learned together, right? Uh, and it was not based on uh, chronological age, but it was not based on academic ability. But when they went into the town schools, it was by a first grade, second grade, third grade, and so on. Yeah. And again, we created these artificial barriers sure. that at a certain age you should be at a certain point. And um, in the book, there's a there's a picture of me and, and Nina when she came to visit me in wow. 1984. And uh, she looks pretty good, and I look a lot younger. <laughs> but uh, That's awesome. Nina told me that, she said, John, Chris, in your lifetime, education will evolve again. Wow. Because I certainly hope it goes back to the one-room schoolhouse model when learning was fun. Yeah. It's got to uh, learn together regardless of their age. And, you know, we, you know, it was not um, segmented. I mean, we've seen a lot of that since the pandemic, right? Microschools did a podcast with Don Soifer on microschools. Um, people love a lot. Some people, I mean, not everybody. There's a big group of people who love that model. Well, and and again, it gets back to providers. Who's going to provide it? Yeah. And a lot of, and, and there is this assumption uh, that teachers know how to teach in this new, uh, you know, this new enlightenment period, right? Right. In fact, the matter is, teacher prep programs are not turning out teachers that are innovative, creative. They're they're teaching them how to be a seminar. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. I mean, we know that high quality teacher is the most important factor in a child's education. I just don't think that we yet know how to find them or how to make them. And so, go ahead. Like you had said, Susan, you were a highly qualified statistics person. But yet you couldn't teach in your son's high school. I mean, that doesn't make sense. I know. I know. Uh, I sort of get the principle, but in practice, <clears throat> it doesn't seem to work out that well. Um, so so where do you kind of see us going from here? We've, we're post-pandemic now. Parents are answering surveys saying that they'd like their kids home one or two days a week. I mean, it's an, like 40 percent of parents will kind of like this more flexible model. They kind of like having their kids at home, but they don't want them home every day. That like a lot of parents were like, thank you, no, that didn't work for my family. But I do think that in terms of your idea, which I think is a great one, and you have a blog called Growth Rings, which is where I read about this, um, the idea that every child is a unique individual and maybe what we should be doing is trying to tailor their school day for their own needs, I think is a great one. I think parents love the idea of tailoring and customizing right. education for their child because some kids are great in math and terrible at reading. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why that, why that, and I, why, why that's a good idea. And I think for some parents, it's kind of happened with, to me with my youngest, I ended up just homeschooling him. You know what I mean? I was like, this isn't working at <laughs> all. These, he's not being challenged during the day. He's doing ridiculous amounts of homework at night in third grade, which I thought was a big waste of his time. And so I was just like, never mind. I'm in homeschool. And I think people did that during the, during the pandemic too. So I love this idea of transforming the public education system to focus on the individual child. But, um, do you think that's going to happen or like what, where do you see the public education system in say 2035? Well, I think change is coming uh, very quickly. Okay. Uh, I think that um, 
I think there are a lot of weak signals out there that our educational system as it is right now is not serving kids. Um, yep. You know, in, the, in this next political cycle, it's already being lifted up as a uh, as an important piece. I think there, schools are the connective tissue of a society. Okay, and right now here in the United States, uh, you know, there's debate on critical race theory. There's debate on sexuality. There's all kinds of these things going on, as well as a redefinition of the family. If yeah. you and I say family, we think of mom, dad, and kids. Yeah. If you talk to millennials and Generation Zs, when you say family, they have a whole different sure. definition. And, you know, it's within the school, within the educational system, that the concept of family is lifted up. And at one point in time, uh, school, community, family, and our country, they were all working on the same yeah. thing. But that's not happening today. No. And so where do I see it happening? Uh, I don't believe until we decide as a country um, what the purpose of education is. Is it, you know, child care, 24-hour child care? Is it, you know, have we institutionalized child raising, you know? Yeah. Uh, and until we reach a consensus on that, there's going to be all these these spasms happening and stuff. Uh, but I think once we can break through to the other side, I, I go again. I go back to this individualized, personalized, uh, differentiated instruction, taking yeah. a, taking a person's um, what they want to do, what they want to be, and, and leveraging that. But also, beginning in elementary grades, we need to you know we need to start instead of asking children uh, what do you want to be when you grow up. The question needs to be what what problem, what challenge do you want to tackle. And yeah, planting the seeds that way. Lord knows we got enough of them to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you think it's going to take hold after we get? The, so, so I don't want to minimize what you just said because it's really important. I don't think. Well, I think we are grappling as a country with the idea of what is the purpose of schooling. And I think pre-pandemic we saw it sort of morph into <clears throat> the public education education system has been given the responsibility of raising our children. And right. then I think during the pandemic, people are like, whoa, 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 we didn't intend. We see that that happened. We kind of don't like it and we want to pull it back. And it's really hard to pull it back. And I think what you're seeing with um, the gender issues, the curriculum issues is parents saying like, we didn't give you power to raise our children. And in fact, we kind of did. Like we kind of did turn them over. And now I understand why parents want to take it back, but it's hard to claw it back when the public education system is like, well, we're, we're now responsible for feeding and psychological counseling and we're responsible for, you know, the child's diet and everything else. Well, we're now I see that we want to pull that back a little, but I think that that's going to be, that's going to be hard to do. And it's going to, uh, we're going to have a lot of hiccups along the road. I, I do, but I, I think it's like, you know, the Wright brothers first airplane um, <laughs> that, you know, it flew not very far, but you know, uh, from that it evolved into space shuttles and rocket ships yeah. and all that. I Pretty quickly, that we, to be honest. But I do think, though, um, I think schools are again. I'm going to say it again. Schools are the connective tissue of yeah. society, and I think that technology is, um, you know, it's it's growing exponentially. Mm -hmm. And you know, I saw it when we implemented. Um, when we put laptops in the hands of kids, we mm -hmm. had to train up our teachers on how to use it. 
all of a sudden now within a classroom, every kid had a voice. That's right. And children that would have sat in the back and the teacher didn't raise their hand mm-hmm. uh, or the student didn't raise their hand, the teacher was right. they, they were never engaged, whereas this way they were engaged, right? Yep. And so I find it interesting now, too, the big uh, uh, bugaboo is chat GPT, GPT yeah. <laughs> which, you know, uh, everybody's freaking out about. But I, I was in a doing a interview the other day and I told him, I said, now, listen, how is chat GPT any different than R2D2 during Star Wars? Yeah. It's just it's just enough. And so you can either be afraid of it, cut it off and not use it. Or you can see it as the tool it is yep. and and leverage it. Because the fact of the matter is the kids are using it, you know. Yeah. And to say they're not is is foolish. If that's just like when cell phones came out yeah. as a high school person, calculators, right? Uh, I mean, come on, like yeah. yeah. It was it was such an eye-opening experience. I was I was invited to um, go down to uh, Florida and spend some time with, with NASA, right? And right. I was telling the touring the vehicle assembly building. I'm under the space shuttle, you know. They're yeah. telling me, "Don't touch it, don't touch it," and all of that. And, um, and then my my tour guides were my the guy that was with me. He says, "Mr. Carver, do you let your your kids use their cell phones in school?" And at the time, I was a high school group. I said, "No, sir, we don't. When they come in the classroom, they we have a thing on the door, and they have to put their cell phone." you know, on this thing, and we don't let them use it, and we try to block the saucers, and he stopped me in mid-sentence. He goes, Mr. Carter, he goes, why are you denying your students the ability to use a tool that has more technology in it than the first lunar lander? Why don't you teach them how to use it appropriately? You know, and at that point, I'm like, did you? Well, yeah. I, I mean, we went back and, and changed everything around. But it was oh, wow. Like, See, you're a forward thinker, John. I can tell. Um, well, I appreciate you talking with us this morning. Uh, sometimes it's hard for me to find superintendents who will talk to me about these things. And I know you're not a monolithic group. And I know that everyone's working for the same goal, you know, which is getting kids ready for the next steps in their lives, basically. And um we're all on the same team at that, but I, I really appreciate your perspective because <clears throat> I think that a lot of superintendents could take a page from your book, which is like lean into these things, you know, see it as an opportunity, be innovative, think forwardly. I mean, I think that that is, and probably tons and tons do to be, to be honest, but we get this resistance and I just, you know, in Missouri, we're the show me state, Right. And so a lot of people are like, well, I don't know until everyone else on the planet has done it. I can't be sure that it's an okay thing to do. And I kind of just want to say, it's okay. Open enrollment would be okay. Yes, you might have to figure out who you are and how you attract students. What is your thing in your school? But but superintendents who have experienced it have found it to be a, a good thing, not necessarily the end, right? If you think that's it, all my students are going to leave, then you're probably not the best superintendent. I'm in in you know, I want to plant a seed with you also, or too, Susan, is that if the, the superintendent might be the face, yeah. he is only allowed to do what the uh, school board and the community allows him to do. That's right. And right now, today in the United States, a superintendent's uh, tenure in office is something like 3.6 years. Yeah, yeah. And so, so the, the, the superintendent, um, you know, uh, there, uh, he can only allow what the community and the board wants. And if the community yep. and the board doesn't want it, 
he's going to be gone. They're going to hire somebody else. That's right. So, That's a good point. Yeah. You know, so ultimately, yes. And superintendents, uh, I'm lucky. I I put in my time and I can draw my retirement and and uh, there I can you go. Do what I want. But a right. lot of superintendents, they're afraid of losing their job. Yeah, and you, but you are staying engaged and you are writing books about it and you are continuing to be a thought leader on some of these things, which is greatly appreciated. I, I've got two grandsons still in Iowa, uh, Bear and Atlas, uh, <laughs> who are uh, four and two. Oh, my. And my my holy discontent right now is to create an educational system that's going to serve those two boys. There you go. That's awesome. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate you joining us this morning. It's been wonderful. Um, great perspective. Um, thanks again. You bet. Thank you, Stevie. 